How's everybody today? Good. Good. Hello. I'm Anthony. Uh, most of you know me, but I'm Anthony Butler. I help with the college ministry um, Sunday school. I helped this past year. And um, I have been asked to help with Colossians a little bit, and so that's a powerful time. I'm really excited about it. Um, today we're going through, we're going to start getting into the meat of Colossians, and um, so that's exciting. But first let me um, invoke the Lord, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to bless this time so that I don't lead you into error. All right, bow your head and close your eyes. Um, Father God, we're grateful for your word uh, that you have given to us as a vouchsafe for the soul, and so um, help me not to screw it up. I pray this um, very fervently, uh, very urgently, because I know, uh, I know me, I know my own mess, and you know even more than I do, and so I pray that your Holy Spirit would be upon me in a very special way so I can um, bring to bear that which he has inspired. And I pray that you would open up all of our ears to hear what he has to say. Um, and I thank you for this time. I thank you for your word. I thank you for your son whom you sent and of whom Paul speaks in Colossians along with yourself and with your Holy Spirit. And it is his, in his name that I pray. Amen. All right. Um, so Colossians 1, 3 through 14. It is a powerful time. And I say that about all the Bible, but I like Colossians because it's powerful in a very specific way. So, um, who wants to be a reader for me? Okay. You're going to have to read loud and powerfully so that the microphone can pick you up. All right. Can you, um, we're just going to jump into the text. So, can you read starting from 3 to do, 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 5. of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. Okay, so Paul begins the meat of his letter, and I'm going to be kind of walking through the text with you guys, so I'm marking up my page as well. Um, and I found it very interesting as I was studying that Paul starts his letter, and he does many of these, uh, with a prayer of thanksgiving. And it's interesting to me that he starts with thanksgiving because he's thanking the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, um, because of their faith that they have in Christ and their love that they have for all of the saints. And in general, we think about um, faith and love as just things that we muster up somehow by our own power. As a matter of fact, there's a, another passage in the book of Ephesians, the second chapter, that um, it's very popular. It's, you know, we're saved by grace through faith and that not of ourselves, but it's a gift of God lest any man should boast. And how many people would look at that text is by reading it and saying, oh, well, we're saved by grace, but it requires our faith to kind of, uh, you know, activate the grace of God and kind of make it work for you, but actually in the context of the, that work, and in the context of that passage, the grace and the faith, the it there in the Greek is actually referring to both the grace and the faith, both of them are gifts of God. Uh, they're not something that are mustered up by the individual out of our own strength or out of our own power. And I think that's why Paul would say, uh, thanks to God the Father, not um, the Ephesians, not Colossians, for their faith in Christ Jesus and their love for all the saints. Um, he doesn't pat them on the back and say, oh my goodness, you guys are being so faithful and you guys are being such a blessing to me because you're just holding on to God's unchanging hand. He's just saying, it, it's God who's at work in this. It's God who is exerting his power in keeping you in faith in his son. And it's God who is working out his love for all the saints. Speaking of the Father, um, this phrase here, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is an interesting construction in the Greek. It um, Literally, it's just, uh, we give thanks to God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and so it's kind of hard to render. And so um, it's rendered three different ways in different versions, and more literal versions that will say, we give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And um, that's actually very in keeping with Paul's uh, mode of referring to the Father. It's interesting because if you were to talk to a Jehovah's Witness or to a Muslim, um, you might uh, run into a question, well, if Jesus has a God over him, then how can he be God? And there is a very good reason for that, which we can actually find in the book of Colossians, but I don't have time to talk about it today, so we're going to leave you at a cliffhanger so that you will have to come back and learn about the power of Jesus later. Uh, another way of rendering it is, uh, like in the King James or in the ASV or in the, I think, the Geneva Bible, it says, we give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is kind of weird, because then it gives kind of this other God who's over there somewhere. We don't really know which God this is. We'd assume it's maybe Jesus or maybe the Spirit, um, but... Um, it leaves a lot of room for error, and so uh, that's one of the places where my blessed King James kind of falters. Um, also, uh, I think that the most appropriate rendering of the passage would be um, what we have here in the ESV. Um, that would be God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which also runs into some problems as well. Um, not that there's a problem with the translation in and of itself, but just because... Um, if you, once again, if you talk to a Jehovah's Witness, like in 1 Corinthians 8, they'll say, well, the Bible says that God is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not Jesus. And so, once again, there are many theological reasons that I could get into as to why we believe that um, God, Jesus is God, and that the Father is God, and there's a reason why uh, Paul refers to God as the Father and not Jesus, but I don't have time to get into that, and so... If you have questions, you can ask me later, or somebody else that knows better than I do. Okay, so, not only is he thanking them for their uh, faith in Christ and their love for all the saints, but I found very interesting um, that he connects, Paul, uh, connects the idea of the faith and the love that the saints have in Christ with the hope that they have in heaven. So it seems like heaven is a reality um, that is sure for the Colossians, and that is kind of the foundation for, from whence they get their faith in Christ and their love for all the saints, which just kinds of, it kind of bothers me when I hear people that say, uh, well, you know, I love Jesus and I love the Lord, but I just can't handle all y'all, y'all church folk, because y'all hypocrites, and I don't, I, I'm going to read my Bible on the side of the mountain, and I don't like you people who, call yourself saints. And when I look at the Bible, this text in particular, and I was musing over this a few months ago, if you have a problem with the saints of God, then well, you don't have a hope. Um, it's just interesting to me how many people can divorce themselves from the people of God, uh, from the church, and uh, still say they love Jesus when over and over and over again, the Bible seems to say that loving God and loving his people come hand in hand, and you can't separate the two of them. In this passage as well, it's a very interesting um, point that Paul is trying to make here, leading up, and I'll actually let Kelsey read verse 6 through the, let's go through on through verse 6 through 8. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, mm -hmm. which has come to you Gone through eight. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and has made known to us your love and spirit. Okay, so we find um, a very interesting construction on the part of Paul in verses three through eight, and it's something that we call a chiasm, and it's he structures it this way. Um, as many people have looked at it, because he's trying to get a point across to the um, Colossians. So you have in verse 3, we'll just, I'll write it on the board, Nikaiasm, by the way, I should explain that. It's a literary device where the writer will take uh, thoughts and themes and he'll mirror them across a point in order to focus his point. And so if we look at the, this first part, he talks about... Um, them, them hearing um, and having faith. So he says, 
uh, since we heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and your love. And so that's one. And the second, go with your love in the Spirit. And then his third point is the gospel, which has gone into all the world and bears fruit and increases. And then we go back over, and he talks about... Do, 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 do. Oh, I actually wrote this backwards. He talks about their hearing. Um, so hearing should go there, and love should go there. Um, he talks about their hearing um, the gospel since the day they heard it and understood, and then at the close... He talks about do, 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 um, Epaphras being a faithful minister of Christ and who testifies of their love in the Spirit. And so, if we look at how Paul kind of sets out his arguments, how he kind of sets out his arguments, it seems that he wants to focus on the gospel and the power of the gospel. And it seems that the hope that they have laid out for them in heaven, the faith that they have in Christ Jesus, the love that they have for all the saints, it comes from the grounding in the gospel, which he says has come unto them and is bearing fruit. And I find it interesting that he says that the gospel is bearing fruit. It's not that they're bearing fruit because of the gospel, it's that the gospel is bearing fruit, that the gospel has within itself power to do the will of God. It's like um, Romans, the first chapter, where Paul says that I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it's the power of God unto salvation. He believes that the gospel, the reality that Jesus Christ is King of kings, Lord of lords, seated on the throne, has dominion over all things, and commands all men everywhere to repent, is doing something in the world. It's not just, uh, well, here you go, you have this good message and you have some rules that we have for you and now you need to do something, but it's that the gospel has power within it to effect change within the lives of the Colossians. And so, that's the first part. Kelsey, if you could read for me verses 9 through 11. So what we have in verse 9, the beginning of um, the previous portion was the thanksgiving portion of Paul's prayer. This is a prayer that he's making to God. The second part is the supplication, and he begins with a phrase, from the day we heard it, which we have similar phrases throughout the book of Colossians, since the day we heard it in verse 4, and uh, since the day we heard it, do, 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 somewhere else in there, I just saw it, but um, since the day we heard it, he wants to hammer this fact that there is an immediacy that uh, comes with this gospel message. It's not that um, you receive it, and then after like 25 years, after you go through all of your rituals and rites, then you're going to have some sort of fuller manifestation of God's presence, power, or glory. That there is an immediacy, not only power in the gospel, but there's an immediacy in it. And he is prompted, it seems, by the Holy Spirit to pray immediately because he finds the genuineness of their love in the Spirit. I think that it is important that we recognize that the prayer that Paul's about to pray here isn't a prayer that he's praying for someone who's not saved. I think a lot of times we um, want to take prayers and like throw them at people who don't love the Lord in their prayers that, that are meant for the saints. For example, when I was oh in eighth grade many years ago, I was young and silly, um, I had a friend who was a Wiccan and she was going through rough times in her life. And so, because I didn't really know the Bible, and I didn't know how to quote the Bible correctly, I just came up to her and I was like, oh, all things work. All things work, it's going to be okay. 
God's going to do it for you, except all things don't work for her when you don't love the Lord. The passage says all things work for the good of them that love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. If you don't love the Lord, nothing good is going to work for you. I don't care um, what you do. And so uh, it's the same thing with this passage here in the book of Colossians, that um, you can't pray that people be filled with the knowledge of his will, with all wisdom and spiritual understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, unless you pray that the gospel would bear fruit and increase in their, in their lives. Um, if they don't have the gospel, none of this can be a reality for them. And I think it is very important that we um, be careful of that. Interestingly enough here, I love the fact that Paul prays, um, if you just want to go through the passage and look at all the times that Paul, even just in this section, says the word all. There is a supernatural kind of unreal an unrealistic expectation that Paul is praying here um, that we might have all spiritual wisdom and understanding and that we might work, walk in a worthy a manner, worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. Um, this tells me two things in Paul's prayer, that um, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul seems to be under the um, assumption that we have the ability to understand God and that we have the ability to please God. Um, I was watching Larry King Live, a clip from Larry King Live years ago, and um, Larry King had a Jewish rabbi, um, John MacArthur, and some other, uh, Deepak Chopra, that's the most important person in my story. He had Deepak Chopra in um, one group talking about the doctrine of hell, and if hell existed. And um, you had the rabbi giving his reasons as to why the soul was just annihilated. You had John MacArthur giving the Orthodox Christian view. And then you had Deepak Chopra, who was just over there talking about, well, God is just this, he's just this big anomaly, and we can't understand him, and he's so much farther than we are. And so to say that he would throw anybody to hell, we just don't know what he would do, so let's not even talk about it. And I think that's the most silly way to go about dealing with God, especially when he has revealed himself, he's disclosed himself, he's, he's told us what his will is, and so we can know him. Paul seems to be under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit here, saying that we can know him, and then not only that, but we can please him. There are some people, in kind of my camp, uh, the the more Calvinist camp, Reformed camp, who will say, well, the Bible says that if you're in the flesh, you can't please God. So, you know, you know, God has all this predetermined. Doesn't matter what you do. The Holy Spirit's going to make the difference. Doesn't matter how much you give in church. Doesn't matter if you obey the Bible. You just can't please Him. So, you might as well not even try. But it seems, to me at least, and you know, I'm not an expert, but it seems that Paul is under the impression that we can please God uh, and bear fruit in every good work. And I really love the way that the King James renders this passage fully pleasing to him. It's that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, not just that we are pleasing to him in a certain way, which might have some sort of application to justification, but it's saying that we might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord and do all the things that please Him. I think a lot of times we trick ourselves into thinking that, you know, well, we just can't do it. It's just so hard. But um, we have the power of the Holy Spirit and the prayer of Paul here telling us that this is something that we can do. Not only are we equipped with wisdom to do it, um, to the means, to the end rather, of um, pleasing the Lord, but we're also strengthened with all power. Once again, absolutely an insane prayer on the part of Paul. According to the glorious might of God, with endurance and patience, with joy. And then here we have this phrase again, giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the... Oh, <laughs> Kelsey, could you read um, 12 through the end? I was about to take your job. And so, like I was saying, we have this thanksgiving here, and I think this goes back to the beginning um, 
of the passage where we're thanking God because He's done something here. The two verbs that Paul uses in verse 12, he says, uh, the Father who has qualified us. And the interesting thing about the term qualified is that the only kind of response that you can give to being qualified is just to be qualified. Like there's nothing that I can do other than be qualified when the Father qualifies me. It's not um, that if you pray five times a day towards Mecca, then he'll qualify you. Or if you uh, pray your rosary, or if you take Mass and you know go through all these rituals, then he'll qualify you. If you go down to the, the temple down in Oklahoma City and have people lay, lay hands on you for the endowment of the Holy Spirit and seal you to your seven spirit wives, then um, you can be qualified. It is the qualification of God. It's, it's unilateral. It's all on Him. And therefore, He's worthy of thanks in that. There's no, it's like what Ephesians says, lest any man should boast. There's no, nothing we can take in that. There's no glory that we can take in that. And the other verb that he uses, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. There's nothing that you can do when you're delivered or transferred except just be delivered and be transferred. It's all God's doing, and like the scripture says, it's marvelous in our eyes. Um, interestingly enough, the, there are three sections of kind of grammatical structure that Paul uses in um, this first section of Colossians. Um, in this last section here, he's using what's called an aorist, which is saying that it's a completed past action. It's not something that's unfolding in time. It's something that God did. It's done. There's nothing else you can do about it. So when He qualified you, you're qualified. When He um, delivered you, you're delivered. When He transferred you, you're transferred. And then, I think that Paul is using that fact of the past reality of God's action on the part of the Colossians to point out um, that they have a foundation to believe that which has not yet to come. The thing that he's praying for, um, if you want to know what that is, that he uses subjunctive um, verbs here. So when he talks about that you may be or might be filled with the knowledge of God, that's something that's in the future that we don't really know if it's going to happen yet, but Paul seems to have a certainty based upon what God's done in the past that um, it's going to come to pass. And then also he has evidence of that because of their present reality, which we get from 3 through 8. And so we have this past, present, present, future kind of um, unfurling of the salvation which the Colossians have received. It reminds me of a few passages, which I think I'll just take a moment and read. I think there's a reason why Paul wants to tell the Colossians about God's actions in their salvation. He could have talked about their actions in their salvation, but he just decided not to. Uh, Galatians 3 says this in the first verse, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This is what I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit? Are you now made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? And then there's another passage in Philippians that says that he that began a good work shall be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ. And so I think the idea that Paul wants to get across is that um, if God got this started, remember you have the Colossians being surrounded by um, kind of proto-Gnostic sects, people who want to offer them this mysterious knowledge that will make you more spiritual, and you have Jews on the other hand saying you need to get circumcised, and you need to get, um, you need to wear your prayer shawls and wear special clothes and stop eating certain kinds of meats in order to um, be in a relationship with God or experience the fullness of what God has for you. And what Paul is, seems to be indicating kind of subtly here is saying that, like, God's the one who did this. God's the one who started this. And if God's the one who began this work in you, as he says in other places of the scripture, then, like, going through those rituals aren't going to be the thing that's going to keep you. And as a matter of fact, as he goes on, he's going to talk about how that actually distracts from what keeps them. And so um, we can rest in the reality that God is the one who is the author of our salvation. 
and that's a powerful time. So, I think I'm done. Am I good on time? Okay. Um, so, as I leave, I'm going to leave you with this question. When you meet the Lord face to face, and this is for the Reverend Vincent's section, what would you ask him? Um, you can discuss that kind of in your groups, if we have groups. And um, we'll be back. Okay, let's hop back into our passage. First, though, let's talk about the discussion question. So, the Lord has returned. He has set all things right. You've been healed of all possible ailments, sicknesses, and sin. What are some of the questions that... You have eternity now to pick the mind of God. What are some of the questions that we're going to ask Him? I feel like I would just be really obnoxious and ask Him, like, how did this actually happen? Like, like what? what? In the, like, what in the Bible is more metaphorical and what's literal? And what's what, are some of the, what are some of the things in question? Um, like, I'd want to know His version of creation. Like, how, like, how it went down from His point of view. Yeah, and I mean, that's a question I have. Was it six literal days or six really long periods of time? <laughs> Old earth, young earth. Yeah. And I think he'll be like, whatever he says will blow our mind, right? <laughs> that's one of the questions I have. What's well, another question you'll ask him? Um, what if any parts of the Bible are like false or altered from what actually happened? Mm, that's an interesting one. I actually have some books that could help. Almost none of it. I mean, I don't know if there are. Like, I'm not saying there. Like, I have a specific yeah. point that is, but if there are any, what are they? And yeah, but I can. Why'd you let Peter write? <laughs> how did they yeah. alter from like the real, like what really happened? Yeah. What else? Why did God start creating in the first place? Hmm. He's unchanging and glorious and perfect. Like, why did He make us? <laughs> you know. It's interesting. <laughs> what else? How he saves. I don't understand the question. The criteria for election. Yeah. Oh, I got you. That's an interesting question. I thought you were going the route of what's the math on three persons and one God? Like, can you do Trinitarian math? I think his answer is going to be when you create math, you can break the rules. <laughs> it's another one. Other questions you would ask God. Popular ones are, um, what's with the problem of evil? How could, uh, many of us want to know how, a, how a, an infinitely wise God would create something that would rebel against Him? Knowingly so, right? Um, I have. I would like to understand natural evil a little better. I'd like to understand the problem of um, natural disasters and earthquakes, and I'd like to ask him questions about what was really behind the destruction of Haiti with an earthquake. Uh, I, these are these are the kind of the questions that play around in my mind. A lot of these, though, we have to be quick to admit, a lot of these are. I even think that we, we might have trouble, even in, in eternity, having the capacity to understand these things. Because we are starting to scratch into the mind of an infinite God who, with all the explanation and condescension in the world, could almost never bring all of this stuff down to our level. The distinction between us and God is so great that I think when He explains to me the creation account, or when He you know, explains to me Trinitarian math. I'm still going to be amazed and wondering. I don't, like, I don't think that I'm going to have every question answered because I don't think that I'll ever attain a level of intellect or capacity to know such things. There are many things that are just simply going to be a mystery for eternity. And then the most probably prominent question that I hear people, what you got? Nope, because you are not God. Your intelligence will always be human. It will be perfectly human, but not, not divine. 
there will always be an incredible chasm between us and God in every way. Um, for instance, God will always be omnipresent. I will always be like locally present. There's never going to be mul- like uh, where Ryan is in multiple places at multiple times. I experience time as moments ticking by. God doesn't experience time like that. He is timeless. He is outside of time. He is incredibly powerful. I'll never be all-powerful. He is all-knowing. I'll never be all-knowing. I will be perfectly human, but never divine. And so there will always be this gap. But one big question that I think many of us do ask, and I think that we can be quick to wonder if there is mystery to answering this question, when I think the, there is actually ways to understand this question, or at least the answers to it, is, What is God's will for my life? I hear people ask that all the time, musing through the scriptures, hoping to find what God's will for our lives are. And out of, I think, good heart, good intentions, and um, I think that we often approach this question poorly. I won't say altogether wrong. But I think that we come at it poorly. And I think that there are two main ways that we, that we kind of uh, miss the mark on, on asking the question, what is God's will for my life? And so that brings us, so we, we've talked a bit about the mind of God, but this brings us to um, the, two, the, the second and the third blanks on the back of your page there. First, regarding motive, when we ask this question, what is God's will for my life? Um, I wrote down a couple of examples of this kind of question that I've, I've actually heard people um, either ask me directly or kind of wonder out loud. They'll ask it like this. This is, this is how they phrase the question, what is God's will? Will God bless what I'm doing such that it is His will for my life? I'm already doing it, but will He bless it? Or, I'm already doing it, I hope this is God's will for our lives. You know, I wonder how many times I was already at OSU before I began to ask slash hope this was God's will for my life, that I be an OSU student. A more overt way of asking it is, does God agree with what we're doing? And then, maybe a little further down the tracks... If this is God's will, everything will go according to plan. Everything will go smoothly. Everything will be blessed and work itself out in the end. And, and when I think that this is probably the easiest one for us to spot as being a bit foolish. And we're, we're talking about our motives here. This, is, this comes from, and you can fill in the blank here, this comes from misdirected motives. These kind of questions are very comfort-driven. I've already decided what direction I want to go. I've already decided that I'm going to major at OSU. I've already decided that I'm going to marry Rachel. I really hope God comes alongside of me and makes this good, makes this right in His mind. I hope this is His will for my life. I hope He blesses what I'm doing. And if I look at my motive in all this, it's I'm hoping God gets in line with me. That's my, my motives are really misdirected. I'm hoping that what I've already decided I'm going to do, He doesn't make it uncomfortable. I'm hoping I'm not rebuked in this. It's very comfort-driven. This one, I think, like I said, is quite easy for us to sniff out in other people, even in ourselves. This one is a little, um, a little more brazen. But the second one, when it comes to our vision what it is we're hoping to achieve. Um, When we ask the question, what is God's will for my life? This one, I think, hits me a little harder. uh, We ask questions like these. Even though we know we shouldn't focus on ourselves, what if we have good motives and ask questions like this? God, so before we even act, where should I go to school? Should I marry this girl? God, should I take this job? God, should I buy this house? God, Is it okay for us to have children? God, should I retire yet? 
Now this is not me getting the cart out in front of the horse. This is me really checking on what God wants me to do. But I think if you, if you want to fill in your blank there, when it comes to vision, these questions come from a very short-sighted vision. And if I can be so blunt, I, I think I could, according to Scripture, I don't think God cares where you go to school. I don't think God is all as interested in who I marry as I am. I don't think He cares what house I buy. I don't think He cares what job I take. I don't think He cares when I retire. I think He cares how I do that stuff. I don't think He cares the particulars of what those things actually play themselves out to be. Um, I don't think it was God's will for my life that I marry Rachel Vincent. At the time, she was Rachel Clarkson. I don't. I think there were other women I could have married and been within the realm of God's will. There were other men my wife could have married and been within the realm of God's will. If I ask, is it your will that I marry this one girl, you do realize that if one person on the planet gets that wrong, the whole system's thrown off. It's not like God had Rachel set out for me. It's that when we said, I do, He now says, now it is my will that you will be a faithful husband and you will be a faithful wife. Now it is my will that she is your wife because she's your wife. Beforehand, it's really, I, I don't think God is so hung up on these things. And I think when I call it, this is a short-sighted vision, you do realize that when we ask, God, is it your will that I do these things? We are focused on, at best, a hundred-year period of eternity if you live really long. The Bible just doesn't really talk about the will of God in such temporary, earthly terms. Thousands and thousands of years into eternity when I'm still bugging God with my questions, I don't know that He's going to care that I was a pastor. I think He's going to care that I pastored faithfully that I did so with integrity, that I did so in a way that brought Him glory and honor, but I could have done the same thing as an accountant, could have done the same thing as a school teacher, could have done the same thing working at Panera. And all of it is within the, the uh, guardrails of God's will, if you will. When we ask these questions, where should I go to school? Who should I marry? What job should I take? These are very fear-driven questions. We're really worried about messing things up that we're going to mess, not like miss God's plan. If I don't take this job, will I have messed up God's plan? And I think he just has a, a different idea of what his will is. So, what if, instead of asking these kinds of questions, what if we looked at the Bible to see what kind of question we ask God? And what if actually when we get to the Bible, when it comes to His will, it basically tells us there's no question to ask? What if it's been plainly, clearly revealed what God's will for our lives is? From our passage here, we know what God's will for our life is. It's verse 10. to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. That's His will for your life. That's His will for all of our lives. It is as simple as pleasing God. That is our will, or that is His will for us. Now, we could hear the word please and take this one of two ways. We could hear the word and hear it in a mischaricatured Old Testament version of the word. God must be pleased, as if he's a real bloodthirsty, um, malevolent God that has to be satisfied. That you have to take that goat and burn it on the altar or God will smite you. You have to make sure that you do all these rituals in the proper way, else He could be disturbed. And He's very capricious. You wouldn't want to go against God and get Him angry. But that's not the kind of pleas that Paul is discussing. Rather, he is talking about a pleasure that gladdens the heart. 
He's talking about God enjoying His people, finding favor with them. He's talking about actions and a way of living that makes God happy. And as trivial and as childish as that sounds, that's what Paul is saying is to do the will of God. To live in such a way that it makes God happy. That's doing God's will. But this begs the question. (laughs) If doing His will is to walk in a manner worthy of Him, I think I can safely speak for all of us that there's there's this underlying frustration. Then why do I have such a hard time doing that? Why does sanctification come so slow? Why do I feel so unholy at times? Why is there this vast disconnect between what I experience on a day-to-day basis and what the gospel explains as the life of a believer should be? Anybody else feel this way? Because I feel this way all the time. This inadequacy, this inability to measure up to what the Bible speaks of as a gospel-driven life. The disconnect between my sanctification and what I think it should be, I'm convinced comes down to the fact that I have a small view of the gospel. And I think that Paul calls out the Colossian church and says that there is a way of living that is not only defined by this gospel, but is empowered by the gospel. And I look at this and I think, wow, I have a small view, I have an impotent view, a weak view of the gospel. Because if you go to the very last line of our passage, verse 14, this is the part of the gospel that I get the most. When I am asked to explain the gospel, when I hear many people explain the gospel, verse 14 is pretty much all I hear. Redemption, forgiveness of sins. Check and mate. I'm good to go. What's the gospel? The gospel is that Jesus died in your place so that you can be saved. Over the last several years, I've become increasingly convinced that that is such a... It is true, but it is a stunted view of the gospel. It is a life insurance view of the gospel. It is a small sliver of the way that the apostles talk about the gospel. And so we can actually see what Paul is hoping we catch, or the Colossians caught, if we read this text backwards. So starting with verse 14, I see the part of the gospel that I get very well. Forgiveness. I know I'm a sinner. I need forgiveness. I want to be in heaven. Okay, got it. But watch how Paul connects these things. Forgiveness of sins in verse 14 comes as a result of being members of the kingdom. We are citizens of the kingdom. Being citizens of the kingdom, back it up to verse 12, means that you are an heir with Christ. Being an heir, back it up to verse 11, means that you will be strengthened with all power, as Anthony pointed out. And all power, look at it, plays itself out at the back half of 11 with endurance and patience. No wonder my comfortable questions, my questions about, I hope God blesses what I'm already doing, that the the, the gospel runs right over that because the gospel says, yeah, because God is not as interested in your comfort as much as He's interested in your ability to endure and be patient and do so joyfully. If you have been granted the power to patiently endure then it seems as though you will, back up in verse 10, bear fruit in every good work and increase in the knowledge of God. And in so doing, first half of verse 10, you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. You see how these dominoes like stack up against each other. I am so concerned that I can't please God. But Paul says, well, you're forgiven. And because you're forgiven, you're a member of this kingdom. And because you're a member of the kingdom, you're a co-heir with Christ, which means you have power, which means you can patiently endure with joy, which means you will grow in knowledge of the Lord and bear good fruit, which means you will please God. 
And I can know that. I really can know that and still struggle to understand what in my life is pleasing to God and what does it mean to take hold of that gospel and to live in that power. And I'm becoming more and more convinced from a number of really helpful books and good conversations and great sermons that I've listened to that one of my greatest struggles is going to be that I always like to reduce this to information. And when I get more information, I will make progress. When I know more stuff, I will become more godly. I will live in a way that pleases the Lord. And I'm becoming less and less convinced that that's true. Um, I, didn't, I forgot to bring a copy. I was going to read a quote out of a book called uh, You Are What You Love. But I can... I can recite the, the basic premise. In, uh, in this book by a man named James Smith, we're reading it together as a staff at Sunnybrook, he makes the claim that to grow in virtue, to, uh, so think of the opposite of Paul's vice list, think of the good things, think of even just the fruit of the Spirit. To grow in these qualities um, is not really going to take place should you just become more aware of what those qualities look like? Should you just become more aware that you should have them? Should you just study them and study them and study them? He says, no one becomes a master piano player by simply learning music theory. They ha- any, any piano players here? You become a master by playing scales over and over and over and over To the point that you no longer have to think about it. It's just muscle memory. And he draws that connection to living a Christian life. He says it's not about knowing more, though you have to know it. But it's not about knowing it more and knowing it better. It's about it getting down into your muscle memory. It's about doing it. It's it's actually living this way that will transform the heart and therefore transform the mind, which will in turn transform... And then I'm left to ask the question, what then does it look like to actually do the gospel? What does it look like to gain some muscle memory over this passage? To embrace the forgiveness that the gospel brings and understand that I'm a member of a kingdom with an inheritance and power and I will know God and I will bear fruit. How do I get that into my life such that it is growing and I am being sanctified? There is an incredible passage here in uh, 2 Corinthians 3. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to read a little bit. Um, 2 Corinthians 3 tells me that I, I far too often deny that actual source of power that Paul is referencing here. This is 2 Corinthians 3. This is talking about the distinction between the glory experienced um, by Moses and in his presence the Israelites under the Old Covenant, the difference between that and the glory experienced in the New Covenant. This is 2 Corinthians 3, verse 7. Paul says this, Now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, that's the Ten Commandments, if that came with glory, so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, Will not the ministry of the Spirit, and you can read the Spirit in you, be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, that would be the law. How much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness, that is the Spirit in you? For what what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was transitory came with glory, that being the law, How much greater is the glory of that which lasts, that being the Spirit in us. And then you jump down to verse 17. He says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into His image. That's the sanctification process. We are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit, and you can read in parentheses Ryan's version, in you, the Spirit in you. And 
I think that I do two things really well. I ignore the power of the gospel and I ignore the power of the Spirit in me. I do those things really well. Any of you who know me um, even moderately well will know that I would love to um, turn this into a science, to overly intellectualize this process and to just get all this information in my head. And I'm becoming more and more convinced by the Scripture and really, really profound writers that that's just not going to do it. It's part of it, but it's not going to do it. So we need to get a bigger view of the Gospel. We need to embrace transformation by the Spirit. Um, I don't know if those of you who are members of the table have seen these diagrams, but they are really helpful um, ways of understanding how this stuff takes place in us. There is uh, the triangle is really just abstract. You could draw it in a line. So ignore the fact that these are triangles. They are just helpful to show kind of the relationship between the things. When we are talking about our covenant relationship with God, the fact that He has made a covenant with His people. And that has something to bear on our lives. Um, There is an important understanding of God as Father, a loving Father, a caring Father, who on His people bestows an identity. God gave us identities as, if you see it in the text, as heirs, members of His kingdom. We are children of God now. And from that identity we have the ability to obey. Or in our text, you could read that as bear fruit or walk in a manner worthy of Him that would please Him. Now to do this the wrong way would be to obey so that you could have an identity and thus now that you have an identity, you've gained favor with the Father. But before you ever had any sort of merits on your own, the Father looked on you favorably, gave you a new identity and from that identity, you can obey. This can't be held by itself, though, because even in our text, we have we have some kingdom responsibilities. And paralleling the Father, God is also a king over a kingdom. And because we have been transferred into that kingdom, we now have the authority as citizens of the kingdom, think of yourself as an ambassador. If the United States sends an ambassador to France, that person speaks on behalf of the country. God sends you as an ambassador into the world. You speak on behalf of the kingdom of heaven. And you do so with the power that you wield in the Spirit. You don't take power and use it to gain authority and therefore entrance into the kingdom. You are given citizenship, and with that citizenship comes power. And if you look at these relationships, this really starts to help us understand how we can begin to live out the gospel. And yet we still need some things to practice. Because this is basically music theory. What are our scales going to be? If you're going to play the piano, you've got to play the scales. If you're going to play guitar, you've got to play the scales. Basically, I'm play anything you better start figuring out how to get it in your fingers and in your head such that you don't even have to think about it. And that brings us down to the very last line there. Desires, rituals, and virtue. How can I cultivate the desires of my heart by putting in place certain rituals that will produce virtue in me? And I can think of uh, and there are going to be a million more, but I, I thought of, um, I'm going to erase this, just to get some space. I thought of four um, things that we can do, actually do, that should help us begin to live out this gospel life. First and foremost, we can have a gospel focus. Now, by that I mean... Scripture is compiled of 66 books, but they're not all the same 66 books. They don't all weigh the same. They're not all nearly as important as each other. They're all equally um, inspired. They are all valuable. They're all important. 
but they're not equally important. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the apex of Scripture. They are the testimony of God Himself walking this earth, inaugurating the kingdom, and purchasing the reconciliation and the redemption of all things. We're going to talk about that next week. But the incredible action of Jesus Christ is the apex of Scripture. It is the climax of the story. Everything else supports it. The 39 books of the Old Testament are pointing us towards Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The final 23 books of the New Testament are all commentaries on the four Gospels. The four Gospels are the most important section of Scripture, and it's not even close. Shortly behind that, I would probably put Acts and maybe Romans and probably Genesis and Exodus and Revelation, and then everything else finds its way somewhere else, and Jude is at the very bottom, probably. Um, But these things are, it's important that we have a gospel focus. I think one of the ways that you can get a better view of the gospel, a more powerful view of the gospel, is to spend time there. Unfortunately, these four books contain stories that we probably feel like we know better than any other, and so we tend to avoid them. I think we should spend more time in the Gospels. Um, I added up all the chapters. There's 90 chapters in the Gospels. That means if you read one chapter in the Gospels per day, in a year you will have read all four of them four times. Like That would be an incredible year. To read Matthew four times, Mark four times, Luke four times, John four times. You will have the gospel start to take root in your heart, in your soul, in your mind. And you will start to eat, sleep, and breathe the ministry of Christ. And you can actually tell if I spend too much time with a particular author because I'll start to talk like them or write like them. And I don't even try, it just happens. I can't, same thing with TV shows. Whatever I kind of saturate my life with for a period of time, I will start to kind of conform to it. It's human nature. What if I saturated my year with with the Gospels? What if I had a Gospel focus? Second thing that we can do practically is to live our days out with a Gospel lens on. To wear glasses with Gospel lenses lenses, to ask the kind of questions that what in my um, sociology class is redeeming? What needs to be redeemed? Where can I demonstrate mercy? Where can I demonstrate humility? Where can I engage with people in a way that demonstrates the love of Christ? I don't ask those questions enough. This, this always becomes incredibly apparent to me on a night when one of my kids isn't sleeping and I'm up at two in the morning ready to kill a child. <laughs> and I'm reminded that I have been extended incredible doses of mercy and patience. And it is therefore my job to extend that to others. If we live life with gospel lenses, we will start to feel the power of the gospel Um, This one is a little more abstract, but it involves these first two. We should view the world as being involved in gospel warfare. This passage says, You've been transferred, delivered from the domain of darkness, and transferred into the kingdom of His beloved Son. I cannot tell you how convicting it is, um, those moments that I realize that I am um, delighting in the things that are from the kingdom of darkness. I'm watching TV and laughing at things that were paid for on the cross. Taking pleasure in things that are not of the kingdom of heaven. The The Bible actually teaches us that there's less of a gray area in this world than we want to believe. And I, on Sunday, I kind of stumbled onto the fact that I live my life as if there's the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of darkness, and then the kingdom of hilarious sarcasm. And I want to have a foot in that one. And I think a lot of that probably belongs to the kingdom of darkness. And I don't see the world as being involved in raging warfare between good and evil. 
There is really no neutral zone in the world. If it's not for Christ, it's against Him. And I must get that through my head as I walk around wearing gospel lenses and hoping that the focus that I've placed on the gospel begins to seep out of me. And then finally, like Paul demonstrates, we should have gospel prayers. Verses 3-8, through Paul prays, thanking God for what he sees in this church. And then in verses 9-14, through he prays, begging God to do a work in this church. How often do you guys pray for the members of your churches like that? God, thank you for what you've done in Brandon. God, this is what I hope you will do in Brandon. I don't pray like that enough. And I think all of this, the reason I don't do all of this enough, I think, is because I have a small view of the gospel. What's the cure for a small view of the gospel? In part, it's some of these things. So there's going to have to be some discipline in me to put in place rituals, like your notes say, rituals that will nurture my desires and produce virtues. Or, to go back to our text, produce good fruit, which means that I will live in a manner that pleases God, and therefore do His will, regardless of where I go to school or what job I have to do His will. Um, You are always being trained to do something. A helpful thing to uh, kind of think through, maybe as you go about your day the rest of this week, is to say, "What, what kind of muscle memory am I developing? For the kingdom or against it? Is it from the gospel or from outside of it? 